Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Um, I feel like I should uh, start out by saying like, um, I'm not doing that well. <laughs> Um, and I really appreciate what Matt said about that song because it as well is not some trite platitude, you know, it's a, it's aspirational, it's hopeful, it's looking forward, it's clinging to a God that provides, that meets us where we are, and, um, so where I am is <laughs> just not that well, but I can still be back there and sing, you know, sing all together with hope and aspiration. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to get through this. I, I cry normally at sweet commercials and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So um, y'all just bear with me. I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we're going, to, we're going to dive in. Lord God, you are good. And you are in the business of making things well. You are in the business of working things together for good, for taking that which evil meant for evil and turning them into good. So we pray that, that you would do that in us, you would do that in our world, and that if there's some role that any of us can play in being a part of bringing heaven to earth, of seeing good things resurrected from bad things, that you would show us what that is. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So back when my mentor was still pastoring a church, he and his wife would do this annual retreat every year for all the pastors and spouses that they'd like trained up and sent out over the years. And Amy and I used to love it because it wasn't a bunch of like content, you know, like a normal conference where you just come and you listen and you take all the notes, which can be great. It also wasn't the constant comparison game about like how big each church was or how much money it pulled in. And if you've never been in those spaces, you'd be surprised at how often those nauseating comparisons are centered when pastors get together. But it wasn't like that. We loved it because it was safe. Because it was a place where we could just be ourselves, be vulnerable, and feel supported. 
And if you know anything about places like that, you know they don't just happen. It takes intentionality to create safe and vulnerable space. We would usually come in on a Friday night, we'd all have dinner together, and then on Saturday morning, we'd wake up, we'd get some coffee and some breakfast, and we would all gather around, usually in like a, a hotel conference room or somebody's big living room or something like that. It would be, you know, 10, 15, 20 of us. And our host would give us some simple instructions. They would say, tell us about your dreams. Or more specifically, tell us about all the dreams that lived and all the dreams that died over the last year. And sometimes we did this by drawing a picture and explaining it. Other times we just kind of get up and start talking, but the result was always the same. Tears and hugs. Every time. Every year we would spend the entirety of Saturday morning holding space for each other, grieving together, celebrating together. And after doing this a few times, I was struck by just how many dreams die each and every year. And when you do this exercise with the same group of people for a couple of years in a row, you begin to see how these deaths stack up on top of one another. Even the little ones become seemingly unbearable when they're all piled together. Now, this burden is obviously not unique to pastoring. Consciously or subconsciously, all of us carry these deceased dreams around with us. It's the byproduct of living in a broken world. So what are dreams, and why do we grieve them? Well, in his book called Say Yes, Discovering the Surprising Life Beyond the Death of a Dream by my friend Scott Erickson, he's going to be one of our summer mixtape speakers next month. He says dreams are cherished desires. He says desire is a frighteningly intimate word because it means we want something. Most of humanity, we have shared desires, shared dreams, things we all want, like freedom and safety, deep relationships, financial stability, to love and to be loved. And then most of us have very personal dreams, personal cherished desires. And these center around who we want to be in this world, our hopes for our loved ones, and how we want our one shot at this life to turn out. So why do we grieve the death of our dreams? Well, simple, because we loved them, and we love the people that they represent. And now we don't get to experience or express that love anymore. See, grief is unexpressed love. That's what grief is. I'm really moved by how author Jamie Anderson talks about this. Jamie says, grief, I've learned, is really just love. It's all the love you want to give but cannot. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. Grief is love with no place to go. I can't say that today without thinking about Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, about Topps Supermarket, Buffalo and the black community that continues to suffer at the hands of white supremacy. About the Taiwanese Presbyterian Church in California. About the war in Ukraine. 
about hundreds of people who endured horrific abuse at the hands of pastors because a group of men leading the Southern Baptist Convention enabled predators for decades. About the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder this week. It's been an awful couple of weeks. So much love with no place to go. Now, I obviously don't know all of your hopes and dreams, but I do know this. Every single one of us has grieved the death of a dream. Maybe for you, it was what you thought your family was going to look like. It was how many kids you thought you were going to have or if you were going to be able to have kids. It was a parent that was taken too soon. It was a rift that happened in your family. that you haven't been able to mend. Maybe for you, it's where you thought you'd be in life by this point. You're this age, or you're this age. You feel like I should have it together by now, right? I shouldn't be just falling apart all the time. I should have more money. I should have better friends. (laughs) I should be in a different spot. What's wrong with me? Maybe for you, it's what you believe to be true about how the world works. That's the dream that you're grieving. You thought that the world was a place where we really did want to treat everybody the same way. Where love was freely given and received. Where you could go to a a grocery store or a church, or a synagogue, or a concert, or a movie theater, or send your kids to a school without being so worried all the time. I talked to a bunch of y'all this week who aren't here. You're watching online because of that. That's grief. That's the death of a dream. Maybe it was just the loss of someone that you really loved, whatever the circumstances, however it happened, which means that the death is not just of your dream for their life, but of every dream in your life that was supposed to include them too. Jesus' closest friends knew all about the death of dreams. They followed Jesus because they thought he was going to be king not king of a heavenly throne, king of an earthly one. You see, they grew up under the pain and oppression of of Roman occupation, and they believed God was sending a Messiah to overthrow the Romans and to establish a new kingdom there and then. That's why his disciples are always arguing about who would get to sit at the thrones on his right and left in the kingdom he established. It's why Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Jewish crowd chanted, blessed is the king of Israel. They thought, this is it. He's come to the capital city. He's going to take it back. So when Jesus' friends made their way to the upper room to celebrate Passover on the night of the Last Supper, they surely thought it would be a time of celebrating the victory over the Romans that was to come. Because in addition to Passover being a celebration of remembrance for all that God has done, it was also a meal that was usually shared right before something big happened. 
It started the night that God led his people out of Egypt, right? Passover for the first time. We see it again right before God's people enter the promised land. And again, before the temple is dedicated, it is anticipatory. It is exciting. So when they arrive at the upper room that night, eager for Jesus to begin this process of of overthrowing the Romans, taking back what was rightfully theirs, I'm sure they thought this night would be one of eating and drinking and, and planning their strategy and anticipating their inevitable victory. And as they reclined around the table, it seems like that night was going to be all they anticipated and more. You see, because Jesus begins to talk and he says this. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. They're like, yeah, this is it. This is the last one before something big happens before the kingdom of God comes home. And after taking the cup, Jesus gave it and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It seems like Jesus is affirming all that the disciples were hoping for. He's going to replace the Roman kingdom with God's kingdom, and he's going to do it before the next Passover meal the next year. The excitement around the table would have been palpable. The disciples are ready for the battle ahead and eager to begin the reign of Jesus as king of Israel. But then Jesus does something different, something unexpected, something that had never been done in the history of a Passover meal and that would end up changing Passover forever. Verse 19. He took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now remember, this meal was originally about remembering how God led Moses and the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt, but Jesus changes it. He doesn't say, remember the Passover, He says, remember me. Not only that, but Jesus starts talking about his his body being broken, his blood being poured out. Think about how the disciples must have been feeling around the table that night. What would have been going through their minds? You see, every day for the last three years, they'd been waiting for this day, this Passover meal to come. The day that Jesus would start to usher his new kingdom in here on earth. But it's not going how they thought it would. Instead of discussing a battle plan, Jesus is predicting his death. They thought this Passover meal would be a celebration, but it's become a eulogy. And I'm sure the disciples were confused and even a little bit scared. Jesus knows this. He knows they are processing the death of a dream. And so as the meal ends, he begins what will be his final time of teaching by saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus goes on to tell them about how he's going to go and prepare a place for them in his father's house, how he isn't going to leave them alone because he's sending the Holy Spirit, and how, even as they grieve the death of a dream, He will give them joy. Joy. That's the part we're going to focus on the rest of our time together. 
It's found in John chapter 16. So you can turn there, you can follow along on the screen. John 16, starting in verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more. Then, after a little while, you will see me. And at this, some of the disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. This is so different from what they thought was going to happen. Jesus saw they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Well, very truly I tell you, You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. The disciples are grieving the death of a dream, and Jesus knows they're about to be grieving the death of a friend as well. He knows his death on a cross is going to elicit more grief than any of them probably have ever experienced in their life. So, how can he promise joy on the other side of that grief? Or maybe a better question is a more broad one. How can grief ever be transformed into joy? Well, there's only one way. Resurrection. It's the only way grief can become joy. It's through resurrection. Jesus says, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. He's saying, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to come back to life, and I'm going to come see you. You see, whether it's the death of our dream or the death of our Savior, grief turns to joy through resurrection. Whether it's the death of our dream or the death of our Savior, grief turns to joy through resurrection. Our God is in the business of resurrection. The resurrection of people, the resurrection of dreams, and the resurrection of everything in between. I love how Scott says it in the book that I mentioned earlier. He says, only our ultimate death will lead to our ultimate resurrection. But along the journey of life, we will experience many smaller deaths that allow us smaller resurrections. Jesus is in the business of resurrection, both big and small. That's what he came to do. That's what he came to bring, to bring resurrection where death mistakenly thinks it has the final word. But I have to point out something really important here. In our passage from John 16, Jesus says he's going to see his disciples again in a little while. They don't know it yet, right? But he's talking about after the resurrection. Do you remember what happened? Well, John records it a few chapters later. Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene outside the tomb, and then he visits these other disciples. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after, this, he, and after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So Jesus fulfills his promise of seeing his disciples again. He speaks peace over them. 
And then he shows them his hands and his side. What was on his hands and his side? Anybody? Scars, wounds, holes. Why is that so important? Because resurrection doesn't mean that the scars are all gone. Resurrection doesn't mean that the scars are gone. See, scars have such a a dualistic quality about them. They remind us that we've both been hurt and healed. That we've experienced both death and resurrection. Scars carry stories inside of them. Stories which, like every human experience, carry both grief and hope. Both death and resurrection. And there is tremendous power that comes when we share our scars and our stories with one another, right? Something truly magical that would happen every year at that annual retreat I mentioned earlier was that as we held space for each other, as we grieved together on Saturday morning, we all got to watch as that grief was transformed. Now, I don't mean that the grief was all gone, I don't even mean that the the pain subsided or that the tears stopped. But as our stories intersected, each of us would experience some divine joy and hope in the midst of whatever grief we were carrying. It was a little picture of resurrection. As scripture says, we would bear one another's burdens and Jesus would meet us there. Now look, I don't know what you are carrying this morning. I know there's a whole lot of grief in the world right now. A whole lot of love with no place to go. And I know that grief can feel so heavy because sometimes grief turns into despair. And that despair sometimes becomes so all-consuming that we just want to quit. We don't even want to try anymore. But I'm here to tell you that there is hope in resurrection forever, eternally, but also right now. I love how Jamar Tisby says it. He says, we cannot give up. We are people of hope. And hope is not blind optimism. It is a realistic assessment of current conditions with faith that tomorrow can be different. We are people who believe that a brutal, unjustified murder resulted in a resurrection. That's how we know tomorrow can be different. Through Christ, we carry that resurrection with us wherever we go. And this is important. We're not just called to be receivers of resurrection hope, but to be distributors of it as well. When Jesus taught us to demonstrate God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, this is what he meant. We are called to be purveyors of resurrection, giving it away bringing life into situations where death reigns. And sometimes that looks like bearing one another's burdens, sharing our scars and our stories. Sometimes it looks like brainstorming and working towards solutions, figuring out just how can tomorrow be different? What needs to happen between now and then to make it so? It looks like advocating for our fellow humans, especially those who can't advocate for themselves. It looks like being the hands and feet of Jesus in a myriad of ways, wherever we are, however God has equipped us. 
Now, we can't do all of that in this moment, here and now. I know that. But we can hold space for each other right here. We can remember what it means to be a follower of Jesus during times like these together. And I'm so thankful that Jesus gave us a way to simultaneously mourn death and anticipate resurrection. It's called communion. We actually read about it just a few minutes ago. We looked at that night of the Last Supper. Here's how 1 Corinthians captures it. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. This is our way to simultaneously grieve death and anticipate resurrection. So this morning, we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. We hold space for the grief caused by the death in our lives and in our world. And we proclaim the hope of resurrection together, both eternally and right now. We're going to do communion a little bit differently this morning. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and then I'm going to explain it, okay? God, you are good, and you are with us. We are so grateful that you have given us a way to simultaneously grieve death and celebrate resurrection. And God, I pray... God, I pray that this would be a space that we would hold open for one another. A space where we would bear one another's burdens as the body of Christ. A space where you would move in our hearts, move us toward action, toward advocacy, toward resolution, toward change, toward resurrection, and the hope that tomorrow can be different than yesterday and last week. And last year. Now we pray that wherever you've placed us, however you've equipped us, that you would give us a a resurrection burden to not just be receivers of your good news of grace and hope and life, but to be distributors of it as well. However that looks, show us, God. We know that you are in the business of resurrection. God, so resurrect something in us, please. Resurrect some things in our our church and in our city and our country and our world. And use us to do it. May Christians, may the body of Christ be on the front lines of bringing heaven to earth. Of ending violence and oppression and all the things caused by sin. May we be introspective about our own complicity in those things. And may we change. May tomorrow change with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.